This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the spike in COVID-19 cases continues. That's seven days in a row with at least 1,000 new cases. Three state senators are asking the governor to help fight the spread of coronavirus by setting up a task force of medical experts who will target outbreaks with TTIS, testing, tracing, and supported isolation. You'll hear from Senator Janet Cruz during the Sunrise interview. Friday is the anniversary of the massacre at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. A South Florida congresswoman says this would be a great time for the U.S. Senate to get serious about background checks, but she knows they won't. We've passed these bills over a year ago, but Mitch McConnell refuses to address the gun violence that is plaguing our society today. Likewise, President Trump said he would address gun violence, but he has done absolutely nothing. We're not going to stop. It is time for courage and it is time to demand that our leaders listen to our voices. Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed wants the governor to talk about COVID-19 at their next meeting of the state cabinet. He pretty much ignored that request the last time, but this time immediate action. Ron DeSantis canceled the meeting. A panel at the 4th District Court of Appeal hears arguments in a dispute over tobacco company payments to the state. R.J. Reynolds claims it's no longer required to pay for the brands it no longer owns. Gwen Margolis, who spent 30 years in the state legislature and was the first woman to serve as Senate president, has passed away of natural causes at the age of 85. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man who encouraged a 12-year-old girl to floor it when she drove his Jeep and a Florida woman who danced without pants outside a Waffle House. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, June 10th. The state health department reports there have now been 66,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in Florida, an increase of almost 1,100 in one day. Now, on Tuesday's podcast, we reported there was a small ray of hope because the number of new cases had dropped below 1,000 for the first time in a week. Actually, it had not. New cases were discovered after the state issued its daily summary. So we've now had seven days in a row with more than 1,000 new infections. Governor Ron DeSantis says this is not a sign the virus is spreading now that the state is reopening. He claims it has more to do with an increase in testing and with clusters of cases in agriculture, prisons, and adult living facilities. So we've uh, now in the last two weeks averaged 30,000 test results a day in the state of Florida. If you go back to the end of March, beginning of April, we weren't even doing 10,000. And so part of this is, I said from the very beginning, one of our goals was to increase testing just when we were entering the pandemic, but then a key part of the reopening to really have widespread testing. So we're now seeing that by testing people without any criteria, you're identifying people who likely have no symptoms but can be isolated um, and hopefully won't infect other people. So we've had this set up in Home Depot and Publix now. It's very popular, but these are people that a lot of them don't think they're necessarily sick, but it's there so they go. And granted, 98% of them are negative, but you do find cases. The other thing we're seeing in Florida is agriculture communities that are really where the workers live really in close quarters. You've seen outbreaks in uh, Immokalee in Collier County, Indian uh, Indian Town in Martin County, Bell Glade in uh, Palm Beach, some other Palm Beach communities. And so what happens is you know, once it goes, because you're in such close contact, it really spreads. So you've been, they've been really going and aggressively testing all those areas, and there have been mitigation strategies that have been put in. I mean, obviously, you don't want those folks mi- mixing with the general public if you, have, if you have an outbreak. So there have been a number of things in those communities that have been done, um, and I think that they're going to continue to do it. Also, 
uh, throughout. Uh, and we didn't have as many in the last couple days, but you're gonna, you have more prison cases at this uh, facility in Miami-Dade. Um, they're now going to test more widely in that facility since they find cases. I guarantee you, you will get a lot of cases out of that because that's the type of environment that it really spreads uh, very quickly. Um, also, we have done really since April, have been working really hard at testing all the long-term care facilities. And so we're almost completed with having tested every resident and staff member. Uh, I think the target date for that is the end of the week. Uh, what we find in the long-term care, I think tremendously for Florida, over 80%, we have over 4,000 facilities, over 80% of the facilities have not had a single case uh, since this all started. Uh, so that's a good thing. At the same time, the infection percentage positive for staff members is about what it is for the general public, about 3%. Uh, for residents of the facilities, it's been about 8%, so a little higher. And I think that's just part of it. If you have one staff, they could, and they're infected, they likely will infect more than one resident. Uh, so we're going to continue to do that. Uh, but I think you, you got to keep testing the staff on a periodic basis. So we're definitely going to keep doing that, which I think is very important. But it's really, I mean, you see prison outbreaks, now these agriculture communities and the nursing homes are just going to continue to be a battle going forward. But I think we need to be continuing to test at a high level. I think that's the right thing to do. I said when we reopen, we're going to double testing. People are going to say, oh my gosh, there's more cases. Uh, but I think if you understand the nature of this disease, particularly when you're testing people like in these ag communities, a lot of these people are 30, 40, 20s years old. So clinical consequences um, are very low of that. But testing more is good. It's more convenient uh, than ever before. But don't mistake identifying more cases for thinking that there were more cases one day compared to two months ago. The health department also reported 53 fatalities Tuesday, so the total number of COVID-19 deaths in Florida is at least 2,851. Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed is once again asking the governor to treat the state cabinet as more than a photo op. Freed is a member of the cabinet, and she's frustrated that Ron DeSantis refused to talk about COVID-19 at their last meeting, so she sent him a letter asking that several items be added to the agenda for next week's meeting, including the response to coronavirus, the financial impact on the state treasury, allegations of data dishonesty. She also wanted to hear from the director of the state health department. Now, the last time Freed made this request, the governor refused and really didn't acknowledge getting the request. This time, he responded almost immediately by canceling next week's cabinet meeting. It's been almost four years since the massacre at Pulse nightclub in Orlando, and gun control advocates say it's time to remember the victims and tell the U.S. Senate to get off its ass and do something. The House has already passed bills to close loopholes in background checks on the purchase of firearms, but Florida Congresswoman Debbie McCarcel Powell says Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has been sitting on them for a year. This is um, a solemn day. We are gathered today mostly in memory of the 49 lives that we lost at the Pulse nightclub on June 12, four years ago in 2016. And the nine lives that we lost at, in Charleston on June 17, five years ago, 2015. And while we're here in honor of their memory, we also cannot forget the nearly 100 people who lose their lives every single day due to gun violence. We're living in a society that is plagued by gun violence. Our country has a culture of gun violence. The reality is that too many of our sons, our daughters, our friends, our parents have suffered the painful trauma that comes with this epidemic. 
weapons that are used by our military on the streets of Iraq and in the mountains of Afghanistan to kill the enemies of America are being used right here at home to kill Americans. And our laws have made it easier and easier for almost anyone to be able to buy and purchase a dangerous weapon. And that means that no one is safe from gun violence. We worry about our friends who go at a nightclub. We worry about our children sending them to school and being attacked in their classrooms. We know that um, places of worship now are not safe spaces anymore. People going about their everyday lives, going to shopping malls, supermarkets, movie theaters, and concerts, everyone has the worry that at any moment someone can come and take their life by a senseless act of violence. Maria Jose Wright lost her son at the Pulse Massacre. She says people need to realize that guns are just as much of an epidemic as COVID-19 and are far more deadly. When we speak about the issues facing our country today, the COVID-19, the outrage over the sins of racism, plus the huge economic issues, we cannot forget the intersection of the plague of gun violence with all of these and why laws matter. The Paul shooting four years ago Friday, where my son was killed, was perpetrated by a known terrorist. And the Mother Emanuel shooting in Charleston five years ago next week could have also been stopped by closing the Charleston loophole. Laws matter and they can save lives. We need lawmakers with the courage to pass laws that will make us safer and to hold the leaders that won't do it accountable. These laws have been passed by our Congress and are being held up in the Senate, and we need to say why. And while we continue to face this pandemic and all its fallout, the pestilence of gun violence continues to attack most those communities that are most severely affected by racism, COVID-19, and economic hardship. More has to be done, and it has to be done now. Fred Gutenberg lost his daughter during the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He's glad Florida politicians responded by passing new limits on guns, but he wonders why they didn't do it after the shootings at Pulse that killed almost three times as many people. Almost two and a half years ago, I lost my daughter to gun violence in the Parkland shooting. The horror of that is it could have been prevented. What if now Senator Rick Scott and then Governor Rick Scott fought for gun safety measures after Pulse, the way he did after Parkland. What if after Pulse, we took those same steps? We had red flag, we raised the age, we did something about it. Because he didn't after Pulse, he failed. He let Pulse just slide and he did nothing. But what if he had done something? My daughter and 16 others would likely be alive today. Had they passed after Pulse, the gun safety measures that they passed after Parkland, my daughter and 16 others would likely be alive today. And that gets to leadership or the failure of leadership. And we can't excuse it anymore. We can't allow it anymore. You know, Congresswoman, you mentioned uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell and that he won't do anything. You know what? He won't. I'm done actually trying to assume we can push this in his direction and get him to react 
or get the president to react. They won't. And so they need to be fired. And this election, gun safety will be a top voting issue amongst Americans. We are going to fire them. We are going to elect those who are going to do something because of what happened to our families. And while it won't bring our children back, we're going to save other kids. And that will be the legacy of our children. Gutenberg and Ryder calling on the U.S. Senate to pass H.R. 8, that's the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, and H.R. 1112, that's the Enhanced Background Check Act. They also know that won't happen until there are changes in the Senate and the White House. R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company is trying to get out of paying billions of dollars it promised the state in a landmark legal settlement reached in 1997. The tobacco giant sold four of its brands, Salem, Winston, Cool, and Maverick, and R.J.R. attorney Elliot Shirker told the 4th District Court of Appeal it's no longer responsible for paying what they agreed to pay for those brands, which amounts to about $100 million a year for Florida. This is a contract interpretation case. The question is whether the Florida settlement agreement requires R.J.R., to continue making yearly payments to the state of Florida based on the sales of tobacco products that RJR no longer manufactures or sells. The trial court ruled that it does, that RJR's sale of several brands to ITG as required by the Federal Trade Commission in connection with RJR's merger with Lorillard does not eliminate RJR's obligations under the FSA to make payments based on the sales of those brands. A corporation that acquires the assets of another business entity does not, as a matter of law, assume the liabilities of the prior business. It cannot be that RJR, which no longer manufactures or ships the acquired brands, is still liable for payments on shipments of those brands. But the Florida Solicitor General, Amit Agarwal, says RJR made a deal with the state and can't get out of it by simply selling off a few brands. Part of the original deal was limiting the liability of tobacco companies in future lawsuits. And Agarwal says Reynolds is trying to keep that protection without making payments anymore. Are we really to believe that Reynolds can hold on to its perpetual release from liability as to everything, including the cigarettes that it sold uh, under the transferred brands, and yet it doesn't have to make any meaningful annual payments in perpetuity. And I'd like to address Reynolds's principal answer uh, because their principal answer is that under the text of the agreement, we are happy to make annual payments in perpetuity, but it's kind of with a wink and a nod because the subtext of that argument is it just happens to be the case that the annual payment in perpetuity amount can be zero with respect to the 16 billion cigarettes that continue to be sold every single year under those same four brands, and of course, that continue to cause exactly the same health problems for which the annual payments are intended to provide compensation. Reynolds should not be allowed to unilaterally effectively extinguish its liability without the consent, at a minimum without the consent of the state, regardless of whether consent of the other uh, parties is required. And that, that really does invoke the core common law principle that informs the interpretation of this contract, which, as opposing counsel noted, is an undisputed common law principle that a party cannot get out of its contractual obligations by resorting to the simple expedient of selling all or part of its business to a third party. A circuit judge has already ruled against the tobacco company, which is why they're appealing. No word from the court on when to expect a decision. The first woman to serve as president of the state Senate has passed away at the age of 85. Her name was Gwen Margolis. The lawmaker from Miami-Dade held the top spot in the Senate from 1990 to 1992. Now, she was first elected to the House in 74, spent a total of six years in the House and 24 years in the Senate. 
In keeping with Senate tradition of honoring the passing of presiding officers, her official portrait is draped with a black cloth and displayed at the door of the Senate chambers. Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed describes Margolis as a trailblazer who lit a path for a generation of Florida's women leaders to follow. The Senate Democratic leader, Audrey Gibson, says Margolis was a principled, passionate warrior for positive change. Next up on the Sunrise interview, a conversation with Senator Janet Cruz of Tampa. She's one of three Democrats in the state Senate who sent a letter to the governor asking him to create a statewide task force to suppress COVID-19 as outbreaks occur. You're listening to the Sunrise podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local healthcare provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org COVID for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. After watching the spike in COVID-19 cases since Florida began reopening, State Senators Lori Berman of Delray Beach, Janet Cruz of Tampa, and Victor Torres of Orlando sent a letter to the governor, highlighting the need for a statewide task force to effectively suppress the disease as outbreaks occur. The governor already has a task force to reopen the state, but Senator Cruz says this is entirely different. This task force would have medical professionals and would focus on what's known as TTSI, Testing, Tracing, and Supported Isolation. Our state has begun to reopen rather quickly. And mind you, we're doing so despite CDC guidelines that insist on two consecutive weeks of a decrease in positive cases. And I'll tell you that here in Hillsborough County, the last two weeks have been um, some of the highest infection rates that we've ever had. So we're certainly not dropping here. And if the state is going to continue to reopen, I think it's critical that we have an exhaustive plan in place now. So the formation of this uh, task force, TTSI, would directly address the areas of deficiency that currently exist and provide specific measures for mitigation. One in five nursing homes lack even a one-week supply of protective gowns and N95 masks. And some of them, a handful of them, are re- reported that they um, they didn't have any at all. So there's a Harvard Safra Center. It's created a comprehensive roadmap to pandemic resilience, and it is emblematic of the sort of information and data that we should be using to create public policy. They focus on a few key areas that we should be focused on, which is testing, tracing, and supported isolation. And we have to test at a level that's high enough to be able to accurately and efficiently uh, conduct contact tracing and then once we've identified those individuals, those new positive cases, um, and who they've been in close proximity to, um, and, you know, we have to make sure that they utilize supported isola- isolation techniques. And, you know, the governor created a task force on reopening the state. No, no medical professional on the task force. It was all about reopening the state for business, and it would certainly be prudent to create a task force to ensure that we do it properly so that the state can stay open. I can just hear his reaction to this saying, we already have a task force. It's it's me and my team. Well, I appreciate their expertise and I appreciate their intellect, but they are not medical professionals. And um, 
this task force would help nursing homes set up supply chains. And, you know, Florida is not hitting the testing numbers. And, and then they play political math with these infected cases. It helps to inflate the testing numbers, which is unfair and wrong. Now, the governor's saying they're doing 30,000 tests a day. Do you think that that's enough? No, I don't. For our country's economy to fully and safely reopen, 20 million Americans would need to be tested every day. Well, we know that's not happening. Nowhere nearby. So, you know, what is what really is the message here, Rick? Are we saying, okay, well, we're going to reopen because the economy is what's most important right now. Uh, we understand there'll be collateral damage and we'll lose elderly and we'll lose infirmed or those that have... Um, compromised immune systems, but that's just the way it's going to be here because we have to get back to to running the state. And that worries me. So that's why we've asked for this task force to hold folks accountable. A letter from Senator Cruz and her colleagues was sent to the governor Monday. They are still waiting for an answer. Your calendar of events begins at 9 when a panel of the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals hears arguments in a dispute about whether Florida's prison system is providing proper care to inmates with hepatitis C. Senator Marco Rubio, who chairs the Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship, will hold a hearing at 10 about small business provisions of the Federal CARES Act. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is expected to take part. The Gulf Consortium Board of Directors, which works on issues related to the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, meets remotely at 2. And today is the deadline for state political committees and candidates to file reports showing their financial activity through the end of May. Finally, it's time once again to check in with Florida Man's better half. A 69-year-old Florida woman who was arrested once before while dressed as a turkey has been jailed again after allegedly exposing herself to law enforcement. Lake County deputies were called out when Irene Leonard refused to leave a man's home in the villages. When officers arrived, they say Leonard hurled a bottle at them, then pulled up her denim house dress, exposed herself, and told them to take her to jail. She's been there before. Leonard was dressed as a turkey when she was arrested in 2017 after trying to steal $1,500 worth of merchandise from a Belk's department store. Finally, a Florida man is facing felony charges after police say he let a 12-year-old girl drive his SUV and she was clocked at 85 miles per hour in a 45 zone. 41-year-old Sean Michelson told the arresting officer he was just trying to be a cool father when he urged her to speed, even though he's not really her dad. He also admitted he'd been drinking. Michelson's charged with child neglect, allowing an unauthorized person to drive, and causing a minor to become a delinquent because he bought vaping pens for the 12-year-old and one of her friends. That's it for Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.